Here in America, we live in a relatively very peaceful place. I know some communities are going through hardship and violence and worry and fear right now. But to a very large degree, we live in a place of peace and prosperity. It's actually unusual that you would live, and as a young person, you never expect to go to war. Most people who lived, they expect to go to war at some points in their life. So the fact that we just expect to just live in this relative calm that we have here in this country is somewhat unusual historically. And it also helps us to forget or not quite feel how the Bible describes the world in which we live. Because the Bible says some pretty surprising things. Do you know that it says that right now we are in the midst of a battle? We are in the midst of a spiritual battle, each one of us. And oftentimes I'm afraid that myself, I'm asleep to this fact. Because I look outside and the birds are chirping and I have parties to go to and everything feels all right. But the Bible is clear that that's just not the case. That each one of us are in the midst of a spiritual conflict and we need to awake to that. We need to wake up to it. Now Jesus has already won this war. But his enemy and our enemy, Satan, still lingers around through the world. And he's out for God's people. He's trying to get them. And if you don't know Jesus yet, if you've never seen how beautiful he is and how wonderful he is, Satan's working just as hard to keep you blind from seeing that, to keep you from seeing how Jesus is wonderful and coming to him. And so we're only going to understand these scriptures that talk about such amazing things, such mighty power, if we understand that right now, we're in the midst of a conflict. We're in the midst of a battle. So now before we get into this text, I want to take a moment and I want to talk about the context. So Sam preached two weeks ago on the sermon, a sermon on the verses that come right before this. And the part, this part of the chapter is actually a prayer. So this is a prayer for us who are God's people. And the prayer is that the eyes of our heart would be opened. So Paul is praying that we would have hearts with eyes that can see spiritual realities that we're so prone to miss. So Sam preached about that we would have eyes to see the hope we have in Jesus. What, what hope do we have? And also that we would see amazingly that we, the church, we're God's inheritance. So he, he wants you to understand that you have hope in Jesus. He wants your heart to see that you're God's inheritance. And this is the last prayer he has for us. This is the last thing that Paul really, really wants us to see. He wants us to see that we have incomparable power toward us. Have you ever thought about that? He wants us to know that we have incomparable power towards us. That word incomparable, what a word. What a word to describe the power that we have towards us. I, I suppose you don't think about yourself this way, that you couldn't have any more power than you do right now. He wouldn't have used that word incomparable if there was some higher power, some better power you could have than that you already have right now. And 
And he wants us to see and to behold it. And so I'm sure that at this point right now you're thinking, well, what, some questions. Like, what, what is this power that the Bible's talking about? So I want to take the next 30 minutes or so just to answer some of the most important questions that are probably popping into our minds about this power that this verse is referring to, that Paul prays that we would be aware of. The first question you're probably asking is, well, what power is it? What, what is this power? Like, what, what exactly are you talking about? And this incomparably great power is the power that God says he used to raise Jesus from the dead. So think about that. So what kind of power is that that raises someone from the dead? So I love this story. I love the story of Jesus and the power that raised him from the dead. If you remember, Jesus, he, he came to earth. He came to earth and he came as a savior, a messiah, a teacher. And everyone, including his disciples, were expecting that he would come as a king, that he would conquer, that he would rule. But that's not how he came. He came to love people. He came to serve. He came to send, spend times with sinners like myself, with tax collectors, with prostitutes. He surprised everyone who he would spend time with. They weren't expecting someone like this. And as time went on, he even predicted, he told his disciples, he said, guys, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and handed over to the authorities, and he's going to be crucified, and after three days, he's going to rise. And his disciples are like, yeah, whatever. Or they just, they couldn't understand what he was talking about. And then it actually does happen. So this person who lived, who didn't deserve to die, who only loved other people, his own people, his, the Jewish people turned against him. And they accused him of doing things he never did. And they accused him of saying things so offensive that he deserved to be put to death. And they hand him over to the Roman government. The Roman government was the political authorities who were in control at this point. And what do they do? They crucify him. They put him on a cross, they hang him on a tree, and he hangs there and he dies. And the disciples, they forgot that Jesus said this would happen. They thought they had lost. They scatter, they run away, and Jesus is dead, and he's laid in a tomb. But what people didn't understand is that when Jesus came, when he was dying on the cross, when it looked like he was defeated, he was actually winning the victory for us that we need. He was actually winning the victory that gives each one of us in this room right now Forgiveness of our sins, if we trust in him, if we hope in him, he was defeating Satan and his claim over us to accuse us of our sin so that God would have to separate us from him forever and forgive us. If we'll only trust in him. If we'll only believe in him. So after Jesus dies, they lay him in a tomb and they seal that tomb shut. And it's like, there's a big cosmic question mark hanging over this tomb. Did Jesus really succeed? Because if he stays dead in the tomb, then we have a dead Savior, and we have no hope. 
There's no hope if Jesus stays dead. There's no reason to believe that his sacrifice for sinners like us was successful if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But then he does. So Jesus rises from the dead. He comes back to life. And God does it by his amazing power. And that's how we know that he accepted his sacrifice. That's the demonstration that God used to prove that the sacrifice was enough. How do I know Jesus has forgiven me of my sins? I know what I did yesterday. I know what I did last week. I feel the guilt. I know that God knows what I did. How do I know that Jesus was enough? I've heard so many people who said, I've become a Christian, but God can never forgive me. God can never forgive me because I've sinned too bad. And the resurrection is the proof that that's impossible. You can't sin more than Jesus can forgive. The power God used to raise Jesus from the dead is stronger than the guilt of any sin you could ever commit. And so Jesus came back to life, and we see God has the power to forgive sins. So then Jesus spends the next few weeks appearing to different people. Like he goes around, he appears to his disciples, he encourages them, he presents himself alive. They put their hands in the nail wounds and the side wounds. He eats with them. And they see, Jesus, you actually came back to life. This isn't just an illusion. This isn't just uh, an appearance. This is real. And after Jesus spends 40 days alive, he meets with his disciples on a mountain. And they're worshiping Jesus on a mountain. And then something happens. Jesus ascends to heaven. He goes up to the Father's side where he came from. And our verses say that when he ascended, he ascended above every rule, every power, every authority, every dominion. Jesus became God's right-hand man. Jesus became the person who, with the Father, is ruling over everything. You might say, well, Ross, Jesus is God. What, wasn't he always ruling over everything? And I'll say, yes, he was. Yes, he was as God. But he also added his humanity to himself. He also became a man. And as a man, he subjected himself to the same limitations, the same weaknesses that we face. And then, as he conquers on the cross, as he raises from the dead, and as he becomes our advocate, God brings him to heaven and sets him on the throne above every authority, against every power, and seats him at the right hand in his heavenly realms. And so that's where Jesus is right now. And, and this is where the text becomes crazy. Like, this is like, when I was reading this, I was like, well, are you really saying this, God? Like, are you really saying what you're saying? Like, this is almost too much to handle. He says, the same power that I used to raise Jesus from the dead, the same power that I used to bring him to heaven and seat him above all rule and power and authority and dominion is the same power at work in you. That's, that's the power that I'm working in your life right now. This is the power 
that I am exercising in my life. And so we often put Jesus in this separate category. Like, oh, like Jesus had all these special abilities and all these special privileges that I don't have. I could never live like that. I could never do that. And what this text is saying is, Christian, God's sharing with you the same power he shared with Jesus. That's the power he's sharing with you right now. He's not going to give something to his son Jesus that he's not going to give to his adopted children. That's really what Jesus secured when he died on the cross, is that all the blessings that he earned, all the help and power that he experienced, is the power that we have. The power that we have to face the things that we fight against. And you're probably wondering right now, why is it that this power doesn't add up to my experience or the experience of the world? Like really, if, if, if we have the power that raised Jesus from the dead, why is there such pain in this broken world? Why is there sex trafficking? Why is there suicide? Why are there drug epidemics? How come Christians are getting killed at an unprecedented level today? Why can't I keep my body from getting sick? Like, if I have all this power, why do I feel so powerless? And as if to answer, Paul mentions two different ages. He mentions two different periods of time in this text. If you look at, if you look at it, he says... Um, that he raised Jesus up not only in this age and gave him authority not only in this age but also in the one to come. So he gave him authority also in the one to come. And here's the difference. We live in a special period of history. We live in the period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So Jesus has already won. He's already conquered on the cross. But he hasn't come back yet. He hasn't established his earthly kingdom. He hasn't made the heavens and the earth new. He hasn't made our bodies new. He hasn't made a world where there be no cancer yet. He hasn't made a world where there be no strife yet, no fighting, no racism. He hasn't made that world yet. But he has conquered in the spiritual realms. He is seated in the spiritual realms. And you have authority over the spiritual forces of darkness that are against you right now. You have authority over the lies that you have been told right now. Because Jesus has conquered. And Jesus is the one who was ruling in that age over everything. And so there's a, different, there's a difference between those two eras. Before Jesus comes back. Before he comes back again. And we look forward to that day. We have authority in the spiritual places to face our spiritual foes. And I'm just going to read to you Ephesians 6.12, which says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so I open up the service by asking you, are you aware that you're in the middle of a war? Are you aware that you're in the middle of a war? And the answer is, you are. You're in a war for the truth. You're in a war against lies. And if you remember, the very first spiritual battle that happened was when Adam and Eve 
were in the garden, and the serpent came into that garden, and he tempted Adam and Eve to believe that they were not beloved children of God. He said, if God loved you, if God truly cared about you, he would not say, don't eat from this tree. And they believed him. And they acted out of that lie, and it killed them. And the same liar that was alive back then is influencing each one of our lives today. The depression, the anxiety, the loneliness, all these different things that we feel are addictions, our inability to conquer sin. I believe that at the root of these things are lies that the enemy has told us, lies that he's caused us to believe. And I don't want to discredit biology or our environment and say that those don't have an effect on us. They do. The genetics we inherited have an effect on us. The parents we had have an effect on us. All those things truly change the face of the spiritual warfare that we face. But we would be foolish if we didn't understand that the spiritual forces that we're against are not working in and through those things to get us to believe the lies that we believed, to get us to feel trapped, and ultimately to get us to live defeated and powerless lives. So, I want to answer the question, what effect should this have on our attitude? Because... Okay, I qualified and said that this power, this unbelievable power we have is in the spiritual places. But even so, why do I feel so powerless? Why do I feel so weak? Why do I feel so empty? Why, don't I, why am I not aware of this power that I have and living with victory over the different things that I face? And I think, I believe that Paul would agree with us that that's a hard thing. Paul anticipates that we wouldn't be aware of the power. Paul anticipates that we would feel weak. Otherwise, why is it one of his very top prayer requests for us? If we didn't need a miracle, right, to open up the eyes of our heart to see this power, like, it would be something that's easy. But the fact that we need a prayer, the fact that God needs to do heart work on each one of us so that we could be aware of this power shows that we forget it. Shows that our enemy wants us to forget it. And in fact, that's his greatest strategy. The only way that Satan can defeat us, the only way that we can live defeated, um, pessimistic lives as believers is if we believe Satan, and if we believe lies that we don't actually have power, if he can get us to forget that we have power, we'll live without power. That's how he works. So the first key, the first effect that this, I want to ask the question, what effect should this have on our attitude? The first effect this should have on our attitude is for us to wholeheartedly believe that Jesus has won. Jesus has won. Colossians 2.13 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's the victory Christ won. When Jesus died on the cross, 
He won the victory by his death. He defeated sin and death by his own death. He defeated evil and suffering through experiencing evil and suffering. And a lot of us are here today believing lies that you're not good enough, believing lies that you're not desirable enough, believing lies that you can't get out of this sin, and we haven't really embraced with our hearts and with our attitudes the truth that Christ has won. So he became detestable and forsaken so that we could be good enough. He became disfigured so that we could be beautiful. He became rejected and he became alone so that he could make us his own. And as long as we're believing, as long as we forget that, as long as we think we're our old selves, we're not going to be embracing Christ. You see, the lies that we hear, the lies that we believe, they're true about our old selves. They're true about who you used to be, which is why they're so powerful. A powerful lie is a lie that's a half-truth. And it's true that we used to be that way. But Jesus conquered. But Jesus came. But we died and rose with Jesus. The same power that made Jesus alive makes us alive. That's the point of this text. We have power to become new people. And those new people, the lies that we have are not true anymore. And so when we think about Satan, we cannot think of him as so many do. We cannot think of him as an equal with God. Like God's on this side and Satan's on this side and they're just fighting one another and sometimes God wins and sometimes Satan wins. Absolutely not. God has beat him. He has no power over you. He has no power to influence your life to make you believe things that aren't true about yourself. He has no power to keep you in a prison of self-doubt and loneliness. One author says that Satan has only bark but no bite. He's all bark but no bite. This author, Neil Anderson, says in The Bondage Breaker that Satan is like that yappy little dog, deceiving people into fearing him more than God. His power is a lie. He can do nothing about your position in Christ. So Satan can only have power over us if we let him. And one conviction I have is that we as a Christian community are far too pessimistic about the outcome of our sanctification. We're far too pessimistic about what we could accomplish in our spiritual journeys, what we could accomplish in our spiritual lives. And I think part of it is we're not seeing that we've already conquered. And, and if we have that confidence, if we truly believe this, we'll live differently. And it really comes down to having a different view of the cross. I wonder if we as Christians, I wonder if we have too small of a view of the cross. Because we look at the cross and we see Jesus died for us in the past. Jesus died for my sins in the past. And I believe that's true. 
and Jesus is going to save me one day when I face the judgment seat. He's going to say, look, I paid for the sins of this brother or this sister. Come, they can come into my heaven and be with me. But it's almost like we don't see the cross as saving us right now, this moment. It's like we don't see that the cross is having an effect on us right now, giving us power right now. And we've resigned ourselves to just living out this life, just doing as best as we can. And then at the end, Jesus will really save us and things will be okay. And that's just not how it works. See, when Jesus died, it was not only power to forgive, but power to transform. So if Jesus really died for you, if you really believe that, if he really forgave your sins, then he really has power to transform and change you today, right now. Think of the sins that you just feel like you can't conquer. If Jesus died for you, you really have power to conquer that sin today. You really have power to conquer that. Think if you feel controlled by loneliness. Think if you feel controlled by depression. You really have power to conquer that. You really have power to live with joy. You really have power to overcome those things. There's a story called Pilgrim's Progress I read once that's really effective story. Um, it's a story written by a pastor several hundred years ago. And he writes this story about a guy named Christian. And the story uses these symbolism to illustrate what a Christian's life should be like. So when someone's name is Christian, it's because this person is representing a Christian. And Christian is walking on a road with his friend named Hopeful. So Christian and Hopeful are walking on a road that God told them to walk on. And they actually wandered off this road. They stopped walking on it. Um, so they're going through this field, and they're kidnapped by this giant. And this giant takes them to a castle called Despair and locks them in this dungeon. And the giant starts to tell them lies starts to tell them how worthless they are. He starts to discourage them. And he encourages them to kill themselves. They're surrounded by bones in this prison. And he says, look at all the other people who killed themselves. This is what I want you to do. This is what you are going to do. And they're stuck there. They're feeling despair. It's the dead of night. And Christian remembers something. He remembers that he has a key hanging around his neck called promise. That's what the key is called. It's called promise. And it stands for God's promises. And he turns to hopefully and he says, I have a key. I have a key. And they put it in and they open the dungeon door and they flee out and they're free just like that. And I wonder how many of us Christians in this room today, are more like Christian than we would like to think. How many of us are sitting in places in addictions, in sins, in lies, believing that we're locked in when actually hanging around our necks is the key that we need to escape? What, what is that key? Well, the key is God's promises to take care of us. The key is God's promise that he's our father, 
key is God's promise that he'll never leave us or forsake us. The key is the truth that the same incomparable power that was at work in Jesus is at work in us. And if we grasp those things, if we believe those things, then open the door and go free. Open the door and step out of where you were into a new place, into a new level of your sanctification, into a new level of your hope and your attitude than you were before. I want us to put the lie to death that there is sin that we can't beat, that you can have an addiction to a sin and I'm just going to do this for the rest of my life. I just, I won't be able to overcome this sin. Or an addiction or some sort of feeling that you won't be able to defeat. But listen to Romans 8, chapters, chapter 8, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So even in that text, Paul talks about the power we have through the Holy Spirit to put the sin to death. I think it's really incredible that this verse, these verses say, it's not power that you have. It's not power that you generate on your own. It's power towards you who believe. It's power towards you who have faith. And so as we believe and as we trust, we know that we can have the power to put this sin to death and to walk in freedom and to walk in truth, to walk in victory over it. I want to make one qualification. Maybe the way I've been talking has given you the sense that I'm saying you can have instantaneous victory, like just easy, like, oh, why was I depressed? I guess I can just not be depressed now. It's over. Or why do I feel anxious? I guess I, I, I can just not feel anxious. That's not the point I'm trying to make. I still struggle with these things daily. I still struggle with sin Lingering sin that I have trouble putting to death. The point of this passage is not that you can instantaneously become holy. Instantaneously not struggle with these things. The point is, is that inevitably, if we believe God's promises, if we trust him, if we make every effort to put the flesh to death and receive his Holy Spirit, and believe his promises, and be sanctified degree by degree by degree, we'll win. And by what will win mean is that we won't be controlled with these things anymore. They won't be the things that define us. Yes, we have to wait till we get to heaven until we're perfectly like that. But there is a category for substantial God-glorifying sanctification that we can enjoy. We can have a confidence in this life that we won't be dejected, that we won't be consistently defeated by our sin, that we won't be held in bondage to our lives. We can defeat them gradually, slowly, by the power of God. And I think as a seal of this promise, as a guarantee of this victory, as a reason to have such hope, we can look at verses 22 and 23. It says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so this verse, it says, Jesus conquered. Like, he literally put all his enemies under his feet. His authority is over his enemies. And he's filling us. He's filling the church. He's, he's inheriting us, and we're inheriting him. And so if he is standing victorious over the things that we're struggling against, over our enemies, then we're, by definition, victorious too. That's how it works. That's how it works to be in Christ. If he wins a victory, that's our victory. And so that's the kind of confidence that Satan does not want us to understand we have. And that's the same confidence, that's the same shift I want us to take. Just one last final point I want to answer is, how do we live differently in light of this power? How do we live differently in light of this power? And at this point, um, I want to address people who feel a certain way. I want to address everyone, but I want to address people who feel a certain way. Like, Ross, that's great that you'd say that I have power, but I just don't feel any of it. Like, literally, what you just said to me is just words. And it's not going to help me at all. And I don't know this power you're talking about because I don't feel it. I don't see it. And I really think I'm stuck. I really don't think that I can have victory. And I think that that actually leads into a downward spiral. Because if we believe that, and if we don't actually do anything, if we passively allow whatever pessimism or lie we believe to control us, it's going to be stronger. It's going to get stronger and stronger. And that waiting around and not fighting is going to actually grow it and increase it. And so we're going to feel less of the power and, it's, and we're going to act less. So C.S. Lewis um, pr proposes an alternative. And in, it's in his book called Mere Christianity. And the idea that he suggests is called, mere, uh, is called good pretending. Good pretending is the idea that he suggests. Well, what do I mean by good pretending? So C.S. Lewis says that when we say the Lord's Prayer, we address God as Father. Which is true in one sense because we've been adopted into his family. But in another sense, we're still our old selves. We're still besieged. We're still self-centered. We're still conceited. And so really, we're dressing up like Christ. We're pretending to be Christ. We're pretending to be like Christ, but we're not actually like him yet. We're actually like our old selves, but we're calling God our Father. And he says that you're actually, when you dress God as Father, you're, you're entering an exercise of pretending. And he says that there's some pretending that's good, and some pretending that's bad. So bad pretending would be like if someone need help, needs help, and I say, yeah, yeah, I'll help you, I'll help you, and then I don't help them. That was bad pretending, because I gave them the impression that I was going to help them, but I really didn't. Good pretending works the other way. So if, if I'm not feeling friendly, if I'm just feeling like I want to be alone, if I'm just feeling like I just don't want these people to be around me. But I say, I'm still going to act friendly. I'm still going to do it. And I go over and I start acting friendly. Sometimes, all of a sudden, I'll feel friendly. Even though I didn't feel friendly before. 
that's the phenomenon he's pointing towards, is that when you start to act a certain way, that it can, the pretending can actually lead up to the real thing. The pretense can actually lead up to the real thing. And this is what I'm encouraging you to do. If you feel like you have a stronghold that's holding you back, one that you just can't break, one that is in your heart and is, I just can't feel it, I just don't feel like fighting this, then I encourage you to fight it. I encourage you to act like you would act if that stronghold wasn't in your heart, if it wasn't there. Act like you would act. Otherwise, start doing the thing that you know you're supposed to do, but you don't feel like doing. And you say, well, well how will that help? Why, why would I do the thing I don't feel like doing and hope that it helps? And the reason is, is that I believe that when we obey God, even when we don't feel like it, when we act like we're free from our bondage, even when we still feel it, that that's actually an act of faith. It's an act of faith. So if a father is in a pool and he tells his child, jump into the pool, just do it, jump in, and the child doesn't feel like it. I can't swim yet, Dad. I I don't want to jump into that pool. I'm going to drown. No, no, I'll catch you. I'll catch you. Even though you don't feel like jumping in the pool, I want you to jump in. Do it right now. Jump in. Say, okay, Dad. And the child jumps in, and the father catches that child. And even though the child didn't feel like jumping in, he was still there. The father caught him. And maybe in a few moments, in a few seconds, all of a sudden he's splashing and playing and enjoying the water. And he feels like, I actually want to be here in the water. And so I believe that when we pretend, when we pretend that we are the thing we know we should be, but we don't feel like we can be, and we pray as we do it, Father, please change my heart. Please change my heart as I'm doing this thing I don't feel like doing. I believe that's an act of faith and that God often honors that and will use that obedience in the midst of failing to feel like it to change your heart. I just want to give two quick examples of what this good pretending could look like. It could look like someone who feels lonely and rejected and they want to self-isolate. I just want to be alone. I don't feel like I've been accepted. I don't feel like people like me, like people want me. And there's a gathering that night with some brothers and sisters. I don't want to go to this. I just, I want to stay alone. I want to self-isolate that I feel lonely, but instead they remember. Jesus died for me so I don't have to be lonely. Jesus died so that I would be with him forever and he'll provide for me everything I need, even the strength to step out of my loneliness and to go. And they do it. And they meet the people and they serve in the strength that God supplies and I believe that those are opportunities that God will use to heal loneliness. It could also look like someone who feels like a failure in his walk with Christ. Maybe he doesn't see Jesus clearly as he wants to. He feels like he's held back, like he's just, he's a screw-up. And, and he, wants to, um, he wants to escape. He wants to watch Netflix. He wants to be on social media instead of pursuing the Lord because that's just easier than feeling like a screw-up. But instead of giving into that lot, instead of, doing what he feels like doing, he remembers, well, Jesus, Jesus died for me to accept me. I'm, 
I'm a beloved child of the king. I am accepted. And so instead of going to the escape that he wanted to go to, he says, I'm just going to read my Bible. I'm just going to do it. And then I, I remember my friend. They seemed like they were hurting this week. I'm going to call that person up and see if they want to get together. And I am going to go serve, even though I don't feel served right now. And through that act, through that act of obedience and trusting God, that's what good pretending looks like. That's what healing often looks like. That's often the first step that we need to take to be free from the bondage that we feel. So in conclusion, I just want to bring up the five questions that we ask every week. First question is, what, well, what is the context? What is the context? The context is Paul's prayer for us. Paul's prayer that we know our hope, that we know that we're an inheritance of God, and we know the power that we have. Next, I want to answer the question, who is God? Like, who is God in this passage? God is the one who sent his son, Jesus. God is the one who came on a rescue mission for us. God is the one who is here for us right now. And what has he done? What has God done? Well, Jesus died. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven far above all rule and power and authority and dominion. And he shares that same power with us. So then who are we? We're the ones God's working in with the same power he worked with Jesus. We're the one he's at work in. And then how should we live? We should live with confidence. We shouldn't live as if we're going to lose. We should live with confidence. And even in the moments we don't feel like it, we should live with confidence. So I think the question that's facing us this afternoon is, can you trust him? Like, can you trust him? Obedience is an act of trust. Can you trust him? Can you believe that when you make that leap into the pool, he's going to catch you? And I really think that this would make a difference here at All People's Church if we believe this. If we believe this truth, we'll be a different people. What will be different about us? We won't feel like we need to hide our weakness anymore. We won't feel like we need to hide our sins and the things that are imprisoning us. We'll be able to share them because we know we have power over them and we know that our brothers and sisters have power over them and can pray and speak truth into these things. And so let's not be a church that feels like we have to hide. Let's not be a church that feels like when Satan has a hold in our heart, we need to conceal that from other people. No, we're people with power, a people who has victory over that. So I just want to encourage everyone just to bow their heads, close your eyes, and just pray right now. Just ask God, God, what, what, what truth do you want me to know? What, what part of this sermon is for me? What do you want me to do differently? Where am I not believing your promises? Where am I not believing your power? Just pray for the next minute or so and just reflect on that truth. <laughs>